And now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 24, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my master, Yahweh's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of Yahweh. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit today, that we might receive and absorb and internalize the things that we hear and read in your word today. Father, fill me especially with your spirit that I might communicate these things clearly. Help me to forget anything that's not helpful. Uh, remove from us all error. Deliver us from all distracting thoughts. And may we uh, sit and listen and hear you speak to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, the desire for revenge is a powerful impulse. When we're hurt or offended or shamed, we want the responsible party to hurt as least at least as much as we've been hurt. We want to make sure that they know exactly what we're feeling right now. We want them to know what they've done to us and, and, and get them back. It's like the story of the mother who heard a scream from the playroom and she ran back to find her two-year-old daughter sitting on top of her seven-year-old son laughing. The girl was laughing, pulling his hair, gleefully laughing and pulling his hair. And the boy was crying, get her off me. So the mother gently released the girl's grip from her older brother's hair and said to the son, she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't, she doesn't mean it. She doesn't know that that hurts. And so the little boy wiped his eyes on his sleeve and he nodded his acknowledgement and the mother left the room. And as she started down the hallway, the little girl screamed, bloody murder. She screamed out loud and rushing back in, the mother asked, what happened? And the little boy said, she knows what it feels like now. <laughs> we don't have to be taught how to exact revenge. The thirst for vigilante justice, the thirst for punitive action without appeal to the authority in charge, taking matters into our own hands, that that impulse is innate. That's built into us in Adam. But of course, we don't learn this from Jesus. And we didn't get this from serious reflection on God's word or God's commands. God's word said in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. 
have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, he says, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what God says. And that's how he wants us to treat our enemies, even those who have injured us, even those who have hurt us or offend us. This vengeful impulse is one that David is going to have to fight in today's passage, along with another very ancient, wicked impulse, that impulse of insurrection and revolution over God-ordained authority. God has required us to submit to the powers he has placed over us, even when those powers are tyrannical, even when they are unjust, even when they are petty and annoying. He has put them over us and has required us to submit so that we'll learn obedience and learn patience while we're being groomed for leadership. Until we're ready to rule, he has put these rulers over us. And throughout history and throughout the scriptures, God's people are always dealing with unjust authorities, wicked rulers. Abraham had Pharaoh, Isaac had Abimelech, Jacob had Laban, Joseph was in Potiphar's house and had to deal with Potiphar's wife and Potiphar himself and un was unjustly in prison. And in light and in the face of all these unjust rulers, there's instruction in every one of these accounts. What do the faithful do to resist where they can? Where do we draw the line so that we're not obeying man where God has said something different? And so we get the accounts of Daniel, for example, or of the three Hebrew children that don't bow the knee to the image of Nebuchadnezzar uh, when, when it's clearly a rebellion against God to obey the authority. But we, we have to sort through all this and, and recognize this satanic compulsion to throw off all authority to pridefully exalt ourselves, to crown ourselves king. You know, Satan fell through pride in self-exaltation. Satan wanted to be God. And throughout the Bible, this satanic urge comes up over and over. Men grasp for power. They don't submit to authority. They crown themselves king, and it always ends up in disaster. So here's David. He's got to deal with these two wicked impulses, the wicked impulse for vengeance and the wicked impulse for insurrection. And having been abused and threatened and chased out by Saul, David has to exercise self-discipline in these two areas. He must not exact revenge on Saul, even when he has the opportunity. And he must not exalt himself over Saul. He must allow the Lord to deal with Saul's wickedness. And he must humbly wait on the Lord to raise him up in due time. Well, let's quickly recap the story and remember where we are. Saul is king of Israel. He's had a series of failures. He's been constantly confronted and he's failed to repent every single time. And in light of Saul's fall, David has been anointed as king designate by the prophet Samuel. And after some early heroic victories by David, David is granted 
a place in Saul's house. David befriends Saul's noble son, Jonathan. David marries uh, uh, Saul's daughter, Michal. And and now uh, David has been incorporated into Saul's house. But then Saul's jealousy and his rage gets the best of him. And he begins continually threatening David's life until it all comes to a head and David leaves Saul's house. And now we find him on the run. He is hidden in caves. He has hidden in the wilderness. Various characters have been joining with him. He has the priest of Israel. He has the prophet of Israel there with him in the wilderness. When he finds out that the Philistines have attacked a city in his home country of Judah, David takes his little army of men to go defeat the Philistines. He saves the city, but in way of thanks, the city wants to turn him over to Saul. And David escapes. There's another escape. There's another close call. And David is in the wilderness once again with Saul in pursuit. So here we are in this chapter of of David's life where David is in the wilderness season of of his story. It's parallel to Israel's time in the wilderness, as we've seen. David had heavenly bread. Just as Israel had manna, David was given bread at the table of showbread. Just as Israel was fed in the wilderness by water out of a rock, so God has given David literally water out of the rocks, springs of water out of the rocks of the mountain. Uh, Just as Israel was to prepare to go in and take the land and conquer it, so so David is out here gathering people and gathering resources, getting, getting ready to take over when it's, when it's time. This also, of course, is parallel to Jesus' ministry, where Jesus is always, he's working outside the cities. Like, like David, can't, he can't just hang out in the cities where everybody sees him. He's got to be outside the city, just like Jesus did. And Jesus gathered people to himself, gathering the raw materials of the new kingdom so he can so he can conquer not only the land, but the world. There's another parallel. There's another echo. And this, uh, it, he also shows us and, and recapitulates Moses' own time in the wilderness. Remember when Moses was a young man, he tried to kick off the deliverance of his people from Egypt when he saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. And Moses came to the rescue and none of his people were ready for the rescue. They weren't ready for the deliverance. They called him a murderer when, in fact, he was defending a a defenseless person. It was an act of uh, self-defense. But rather, they don't want him. They're not ready for Moses. So Moses goes into the wilderness to tend sheep for 40 years until the people are ready for deliverance. Well, something similar has happened here. David has delivered his own people in the city of Judah, and yet his his own countrymen have rejected him, the people whom he delivered, and they've sided with Saul. They're, They're ready for deliverance. And so the Savior has to go out to the wilderness and wait for God to exalt him, wait for God to lift him up. And what happens when Jesus is in the wilderness for the first time? Well, Jesus is tempted to take shortcuts. He's tempted by Satan to go the serpent's route of the easy way. And David is about to be tempted the same way. So the Bible's narrative, again, as we've always seen, there are all these threads moving in and out, and everything is tied and connected together in this beautiful way. Uh, as we're never just reading one story, but it's, it's pulling in every part and every, every edge of scriptures pulled in and focused um, here. So as the chapter opens, Saul is once again taking up his pursuit of David, and he comes into the wilderness of 
En Gedi, which simply means spring. And he's looking for David, hoping to find him. At some point, Saul needs to take care of some personal business. He, quote, went into a cave to take care of his needs. Uh, the only other place this phrase is used is uh, in the story of the judge Ehud. Remember Ehud and the wicked Moabite king Eglon? Ehud snuck into Eglon's inner chambers and he killed Eglon and then he snuck out the other way and he locked the doors behind him. And later Eglon's uh, servants come and they bang on the door and they're knocking on the door. They think that he must be in the bathroom attending to his needs. They're like, <laughs> it's very hard for the inner four-year-old in me not to come out when you, when you talk about this stuff. <laughs> you know, did you fall in is what they're asking. Um, and uh, they think he must be in the bathroom. And this reference is relevant of Ehud and Eglon because um, Saul is in, a, uh, is in a similarly vulnerable spot here just as Eglon was. So Saul is an Eglon, and he's close to being attacked by a new Ehud. So, so what's happening here? Well, Saul takes the newspaper into a cave to take care of his, to take care of his business, um, which just so happened to be, as luck would have it, it happens to be the very cave that David and his men are hiding in. Saul is very exposed here in more ways than one. Not only is he in the middle of taking care of his personal business, but he's also cut off from his men. He left his men, he left his troops to go find a cave, to find a moment of peace, and to uh, get away for a minute, as you want to do, right? When you have little kids running around, you just close the door and, you know, have a moment to yourself. And that's what he is, is doing. He's all by himself. Some of David's men are in the back of the cave and they are thrilled at this opportunity. They say to David, Yahweh has delivered Saul right into the palm of our hands. Look, there he is. Let's go get him. There must have been some kind of giddiness and elation at the prospect of Saul coming right to their doorstep. And they think everything can just be over right now. Just, just kill him. He's not going to expect it. And he's not going to put up a whole lot of defense in the position he's in. But David understands this very differently. And he's very cautious regarding their motives. Beware of people who have a stake in the outcome who come to you and say, this is God's will for your life. You know, the, these men know if David is king, then we're going to get promoted with him. So they say to David, this is Yahweh's will. This is what he wants. He, he has been delivered right into your hand. You take care of him. You kill him. Now, David knows this may be providence, but it looks a whole lot more like temptation. Killing Saul here and now is a shortcut. It's an easy way out of all of his trouble. It would be quick revenge. It would be a, a very a shrewd act of insurrection, striking the tyrant down. But David knows, and he's uneasy with this, because this looks like uh, the sin of Adam. This looks like reaching. This looks like grasping for something that God hasn't given you explicitly. So David is facing the same temptation that Jesus is later going to face. When, when Jesus um, is tempted in the wilderness and Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world, Satan says, I'll deliver all of this to you, Jesus. All you have to do is just, just bend the knee. Is it that hard? Just, just kneel. A little bow is all it takes. And in fact, this is critical. What Satan offered Jesus there 
was indeed God's will for Jesus. Doesn't God want to deliver all the kingdoms of the world over to Jesus? Well, that seems so reasonable that what Satan is offering Jesus is what God wants. God wants to deliver all of the kingdoms to his son. Jesus will have all the kingdoms of the world, just not this way. This, this is not how it happens. This is not how God wants it to go. Uh, you can't take the shortcut. You can't do it without the cross. And this very same thing is being offered to David by his men. They're offering God's will. It is God's will for David to be king. That's not under, uh, 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 that's not a question. That's not in dispute. God wants David to be king, but this way, is this how we're going to do it? It's God's will, but it's not God's way. And there's some other important factors to consider. David has never been commissioned by God to kill Saul. Now, every time David takes an action, he's asked so far, he's asked the high priest, does the Lord want me to go down and deliver that city? Does, are you sure? Because we want to ask the Lord, does, does he want us to go do this thing? God has never commissioned David to kill Saul. God has never commanded him to do that. And all this time, it's never been David's intention. There are other times. If, if David were to kill Saul, if that were to be his goal, there would have been other times where he could have done that. He was living under the same roof as Saul for a long period of time. To kill Saul now would be rash and it would be foolish and it would undermine everything David had done to gather to su uh, support in Israel the right way, to obey and to submit to the authority that God had placed over him. One of David's chief qualifications as king is that he's not rash. He's not vengeful. He's mature beyond his years. In many ways, he's more mature than Saul. And he always, always, always maintained respect for the office of king. He, remain, he maintains respect for the Lord's anointed. And this is, a, this is critical and, and something that deserves way more time than we have today to spend on. But I'm just going to give you a little taste, a little hint of it. But this is a common theme throughout the scriptures, and we're seeing it here. It's under persecution and it's in bondage that we are prepared for rule. Israel was discipled as a nation. They were being prepared for rule when they were in slavery in Egypt. It's under oppression that we are shaped into rulers. It was only after severe persecution in the first centuries of the church that the church was exalted to the point where they could take over the whole Roman Empire. See, we're not ready as, as a church right now in this society. We're not ready to rule because we have not suffered. We have not submitted. We have not, we have not bowed the knee. We have not, we have not been in a position to learn obedience this way. If we were to be called up tomorrow morning and Washington says, you know, I want the top 200 evangelical leaders in the United States to come and tell us how to straighten this mess out, it would be a bigger disaster than what we have now. We can't even govern our own churches. We can't govern our own families. We can't govern ourselves. And yet we're supposed to govern a nation? No, we have not learned obedience. You learn discipline and you learn how to rule under submission. And sometimes it's only after you've had a tyrant's boot on your neck for a couple of centuries that you're prepared to rule. 
David gets this. And so he's patient and he doesn't kill Saul. He understands this is how I learn. This is how I grow into the role of king. But at the same time, while David doesn't kill Saul, he does something incredibly foolish. And there's no good way to paint this. And there's, there's, it's not good any way you look at it from any angle. Goaded on by his men, David thinks, well, I got to do something. And young men and women, you see here the, the influence of other people who are foolish and who want you to do something really stupid. The, the pressure is real. The pressure is intense. They want you to do something really obnoxious. And so the men are back there. David, get him, get him, get him. And so rather than stabbing him, David sneaks up behind Saul, still taking care of his business, and David takes a knife and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. He cuts off the tassel on, on Saul's robe. Remember that clothing in the scriptures, especially for a king and a prophet and a priest, clothing is a sign of one's office. Saul's robe has already been torn from him one time, and that was a sign that his kingdom was going to be torn from him. When Samuel grabbed his robe and tore it off of him, that was a sign your kingdom is leaving you. You are going to be divested of the kingdom. But it's very critical. It's important to remember Samuel was the one who did that. Samuel was the authority in Saul's life. He had the position to be able to do that. Saul was like a son to Samuel. We read over and over all these allusions to, to Samuel being Saul's adopted father. David, on the other hand, he doesn't have the authority to play games like this. He does not have the authority to desecrate the robe of Saul. Now, in order for us to really grasp this and understand what's going on here, we have to remember a few things about Israelites' garments. In Numbers 15, God required his people to wear four corners on their garments. There were to be four literally wings. Now, I, I'm sure that they weren't stylized like angel wings, but they were four corners or four flaps of, of the garment. And at the end of each wing was a tassel of blue cloth, tassels with blue thread. And this is what the Lord says. When he commands them to do this, he says, and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of Yahweh and do them. That's what God says in Numbers 15. You're to have the tassels, four corners of your garment, to look upon them and remember the commandments of Yahweh to do them. Now, we don't make that connection. What does a tassel have to do with remembering the commandments of the Lord? How does, how does that work? They would know, and it would make sense to them, but we have to use our imagination. We have to think through this a little bit. We don't live in the same world of symbol and metaphor. We think clothes are just clothes, you know, cutoffs and flip-flops and, you know, uh, sleeveless t-shirts to, to eat at a steakhouse. I guess that's fine, right? Is that, is that normal? I mean, that's what we do. Uh, but, but in Israel, there were symbolic aspects. Not only was modesty an issue, not only was propriety an issue, but there was also a, a symbolic aspect of what you wore. So they were to have these garments with four wings. What else has four wings? Well, the cherubim have four wings. God's chosen people were to be like the angels. They were to be his messengers on earth. In fact, the word angel 
just means messenger. We have this word evangelism. Have you ever noticed the word angel is right in the middle of the word evangelism? It's because the Greek word euangelion means good good message. So the evangel is, is the good news. Uh, angel sits right in the middle of the word evangelism. You are, you are like the angels. Uh, and God's people are his, his messengers, his angelic servants. And what do angels do? Well, God says, go over there and they go over there. God says, come here and they come here. God says, go do this and they go do that. That's what his people are to be like. Cherubim also have four wings to cover the four corners of the earth with the glory of God. What is the, what is the song of the cherubim? They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The cherubim cover with their four wings the four corners of the earth, covering the earth with the glory of God. And then with the Ark of the Covenant, with their four wings, there were cherubim on top of the, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, they support the throne of God. The, the ark is the throne of God, the throne of the presence of God, and he rests upon the angel's wings, the four wings of the cherubim. So the cherubim hold up God with their wings and with their praises, and this is instructional for Israel. He gives them garments, and he says, you people are going to go around with four wings. And it's your job to enthrone God on your life. Enthrone him on your praises. You uphold his holiness. You uphold his law, his role as ruler over you and all the earth. And this is how you take dominion over the earth. God is enthroned on you and on your praises. Now, surely this is some of what they were to think of when God says, you see the tassel, you're going to have four tassels, four blue tassels on the edges of your garments, on the wings of your garments. And this is what you're to consider. This is what you're to think of. Why are they blue? Well, it seems obvious. Blue is the color of the heavens, which is where the angels operate in the heavens. And the tassel was there to remind Israel of their position in the heavenlies as the heavenly people. Our calling as the heavenly people, our calling as the new covenant angels are to bring heaven's rule to earth. We want things to run here like they do in heaven. Uh, let your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven is what we pray uh, uh, consistently. So all of this is wrapped up in this theology and symbolism and, and, and the metaphor of the four wings of the garment with the four tassels. So what did David do? He goes up and he cuts one of those tassels off of Saul's kingly robe. This is the height of disrespect. This is terrible. And so this is why it's so serious. He cuts a wing off the king's garment, a tassel. He is attacking Saul's kingdom and the kingdom of God by doing this. He's undermining Israel and the office of the king. He's breaking the fifth commandment. And immediately, as soon as David does this, he's stricken in his conscience. Have you ever done something and immediately you're like, oh no, I should not have done that. Immediately you're convicted that what you did was not right or what just came out of your mouth. You say something in anger, you say something in frustration, and immediately it leaves your lips and you say, Oh man, I don't mean that. I did not mean to say that. I am, I, I got to repent and I got to fix that right now. As soon as David does this, his heart troubles him 
and immediately feels guilty for what happened. And he should. He says in verse 6, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my master, Yahweh's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of Yahweh. He calls him the anointed of Yahweh twice, out of respect for the office that he feels so guilt-stricken. And then he turns around and he lights into his men who put him up to it. Another way of translating this is he tore them apart. Verse 7, where... I lost my spot. Here we go. Verse seven. So David restrained his servants. That's literally, he tore into his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went his own way. He realizes what a terrible example that he has just been for his own men. How foolish they were to tempt him to do this, to provoke him. David understood something that we all need to grasp, especially if we're in any position of authority or honor or parents, husbands, wives, uh, managers. We all need to grasp this. If you want to, if you want people to respect and honor you in the position that you have and in the authority that you have, you must respect and honor and obey the authority over you. If you want others to submit to your leadership, you must submit to the leadership God has put over you in your life. Submit to those God has put over you. You, you, you want some obedience? Well, show me what that looks like. Show us how that's done. Submit to the authority God has put over you. So many guys act like the king of the castle. They want everybody to obey them and, and jump when they say jump and stand on one leg when they stand on one leg. But they won't submit and they run their mouths about every authority that's over them all the time. Well, you are cutting off the branch that you're sitting on when you do that. When you badmouth the authority God has put in your life and you turn around and tell your children to obey you, you're teaching them more by your disobedience than by your command for them to obey. David understands this. He knew right then and there that he was sowing the seeds of his own destruction. If he's teaching his servants how to disobey the king, he's teaching them how to undermine authority. So he has to make it right immediately. Saul is about halfway back down the mountain and David comes right after him. Verse eight, and we're just gonna read these two little sections uh, pretty close together. uh, What David says and then what Saul says. Um, Verse eight. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look this day, your eyes have seen that Yahweh delivered you today into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let Yahweh judge between you and me and let Yahweh avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let Yahweh be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. 
Can you imagine the chill that went up Saul's spine when he's walking down the mountain in his own world, not thinking a, a thought about where he is or what just happened to him, and he hears David's voice further up the mountain? Can you imagine the shock that gripped him when he heard David's voice? He must have been stricken with fear. Saul is separated from his army, and he realizes what just happened. I could be dead right now, and I wouldn't even know what hit me. David could have killed me. And David repents. David bows down before the king on his face, and he says, Look, Saul, I'm not trying to do you any harm. I could have killed you just now, and I didn't do it. And I apologize for what I did do because I disrespected your office and I disrespected you. So please forgive me for this. David calls him father and says, I don't want to hurt you, but you're hunting me like an animal that you want to kill. What am I? Am I, am I a dead dog? Am I, am I a flea on a dead dog? I'm nothing. You, you can hear David's humility here. He's not thumping his chest saying what a great military commander he is and what, a, what an awesome assassin he could have been. I could have, I could have killed you right now, Saul. You don't know who you're messing with. That's not what he says. He says, why don't we just let the Lord sort this out? David appeals to Yahweh. David is confident that the Lord is going to work out this whole mess and that David knows I'm only going to make it worse by pulling a stunt like I just did. By appealing to Yahweh also, David isn't putting his confidence in a change of heart in Saul and he's not, he's not waiting for Saul to make a fresh batch of promises. He's way beyond that at this point. He just casts the whole matter before the Lord and he sends his appeal up the chain of command. Lord, you have to sort this out. I'm gonna read what Saul says, verse 16. We'll finish the chapter. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you've dealt well with me. For when Yahweh delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may Yahweh reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, no, no indeed, that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by Yahweh that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul has disowned David up to this point. He's, he, what has he been calling him? That son of Jesse, that son of Jesse, when formerly he called him David, my son. Now he calls him again, David, my son, and he weeps. And obviously Saul is just overwhelmed with emotion of the fear and the fact that his life has just been spared. But at this point, when Saul sees the torn edge of his robe in the hand of David, he knows that David's kingship is an inevitability. It's going to happen. There's nothing to stop it. So he asked David, will you spare my descendants when you become king? David has already made that promise to Jonathan. Saul's pretty late uh, to the scene here. He's late to the game. All along, David has promised to spare Saul's house. Saul has no basis for any of this fear, but Saul is not a stable man. He's an emotional roller coaster. One minute he's threatening his own son with curses for, for taking up for David. And, and now he's crying out, calling David his son. Stability and righteousness go hand in hand. 
and instability and moral compromise go hand in hand. And Saul is squarely in the category of emotionally and mentally and spiritually unstable. He's not a stable man. Uh, and, and after this, of course, David doesn't trust him yet. He's heard this before. Saul goes back to his house. David goes to his stronghold. If David trusted Saul, he would go with him back to his house. But David doesn't do that. David goes the opposite direction. He doesn't trust uh, this latest display of Saul. And in fact, uh, Saul's going to go back on what he just said again. But in spite of the treatment that Saul deserves, in spite of how little respect that, that Saul has actually earned, this is full of lessons and tr- instruction for us, the way, that, the way that David respectfully treats Saul. It reminds us, you can't change other people, and you can't make them treat you decently and respectfully. Yet, it is still our responsibility before God to treat them with an honor that they don't deserve. We're not responsible for their sins against us. We are responsible for our responses. There is nothing that anybody else can do that will back us into a corner where the only thing we can do is sin. That never happens. There is always a righteous way of escape. There's always a righteous response. We have to stand before God and answer to him and live in such a way that we can do that with a clear conscience, no matter what other people may do against us, which is why David rushes to repentance as soon as he is convicted. It didn't matter what Saul had done wrong to David. David had to repent for his foolishness. And I believe had David not repented, his kingdom would have been torn from him. David is exemplifying that that instruction from Romans that I read at the beginning. As much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. And, And he says, if it's possible, because he knows it's not always possible. Not everyone wants peace. Psalm 120 says, I am for peace, but when they speak, they are for war. There are people who just love to be contentious. They just love to fight. They have a lust for conflict in war. You can't control them. Paul says, control what depends on you. Whatever you have charge over, do that part. David's escape into the cave shows us that there's a time to get away. There's a time to avoid conflict. There's a time to give someone space to clear their head, to cool off and maybe cool down. When you're dealing with madmen, when you're dealing with inconsistent, instable men, sometimes giving them space buys you time. There's also another side to this. By going out and confronting Saul, David shows us that there's a time to do that too. Take the risk, call him out see what the Lord does with it. In every case, you can be courageous as long as you appeal everything up the chain of command to the Lord. You never take matters into your own hands. You must resist the urge for revenge. You must resist and kill that revolutionary spirit. You can only make things worse. You can only add to your own sins and add to the mess by doing those things. What we must do is cry out to the Lord to take care of things. And this, this is where so much of the harsh language of the Psalms comes into play. People get a little squeamish, a little nervous by some of the language of the Psalms. So I, I know sometimes we're singing Psalms and you think and you stop and say, wait a minute, are we allowed to say that? Can we hate those who hate the Lord? Can we do that? There's some language in the Psalms like Psalm 55. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave. Psalm 58, oh God, break their teeth in their mouths. Ah, 
Psalm 69, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Oh, Psalm 109, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. How can we pray like that? Well, you see, David prayed like that as Saul pursued him. And praying like that is not an act of vengeance on my part. I'm asking the Lord to take care of this. I'm asking the Lord to stop their wickedness and their violence. I'm asking the Lord to take care of it so I don't have to because I can't. If you pray like this against the Lord's enemies, it actually frees you to love those enemies. It takes vengeance out of your hands as you appeal to the Lord. Now, you don't have to hate them. You don't have to despise them or fear them. You're liberated to love them the way that Jesus commands. What we try to do, though, is we try to fake the nice part. We try to fake the cordial parts while inside we brood destruction and take uh, vengeance. How, How can I get back? How can I knock them down a notch? No, what the Lord gives us is he says, you stand in my sanctuary and you cry out to me to take care of this and I will. And then, and then you're free to have a proper perspective in your heart of, of uh, love for your enemies and service to them. It's critical that we meditate on this for two reasons. Like I said, there's so much more here to cover. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly. We've got to meditate on this for two reasons. First of all, we still have a little bit of peace and ease in this country. We still have a little bit of time, it feels like, but the barbarians are at the gates. And it's going to be sooner rather than later that we're going to have to consistently deal with Saul-like oppressors. We're going to have to deal with tyrants on a regular basis like Saul. And so it's important now that we get our heads screwed on straight and we know how to respond to these tyrants and oppressors. And secondly, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are presently under such tyrants and oppressors. And so we intercede for them. We pray the Psalms for them. We lift up our prayers for them and with them so that God would be pleased to bring their persecution to an end and lift them up to positions of authority. And don't forget, it's through submission to a tyrant, through submission to a mob, through submission to an unjust and cruel punishment that Jesus becomes our savior. This is how Jesus becomes savior, by dealing with men like Saul the right way. And this is the way that he calls us to follow, not the way of vengeance, that doesn't fix anything, not the way of insurrection, that doesn't do anything, the way of the cross, that's what changes the world. Let's pray. Father, give us this grace and fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to understand and navigate wisely these kinds of situations. We thank you for the testimony and the story of David. And we ask you to continue to penetrate our minds and our hearts so that, so that we can embody this and we can live this way that David, David shows us. And, and we ask this because David is, is showing us Jesus. J- David has shown us uh, the submission that his greater son Jesus underwent to deliver us in the world from death and darkness. And so, Father, uh, give us your Holy Spirit that we might understand this more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.